Anyways, we've had a really good time. Uh, I've had a really good time with you. Thank you for inviting us here and, and uh, my daughter as well. I know she's having a great time and uh, praise the Lord for what he's been doing. We expect him to continue working in our hearts. And uh, we've already answered two questions. Do you guys remember what the first question was? Who is, who is, Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we learned that Jesus is our God. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. We don't We don't make Him God or Lord or Savior. We just submit to the fact that He is God and Lord and Savior, right? And then we answer the second question. What is the gospel, gospel, right? The good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, if if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 9. And I want to go ahead and just recap the the, uh, verses that we've already looked at. We're looking at verses 18 through 26 in our little sermon series, five sermons uh, through these verses. And uh, first sermon, we looked at verses 18 through 20. It says, uh, this is Luke 9, 18. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked him, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto him, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. One, one question that was asked to two different groups of people. One was a saving answer. The other one was not a saving answer. We must know Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. If we're ever going to talk about discipleship, we must talk about this first. And then uh, a little bit later this afternoon, we looked at verses 21 and 22. Let's remind ourselves. It says, And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. And in that second lesson, we talked about the gospel. And Jesus talks about everything, some of the things that he was he, he must do some of the things that he had to do in order for our salvation. We learned that, that God didn't make a mistake. It wasn't that man messed up everything and now God's trying to fix man's issues. This was all a part of God's plan. There's no plan B with God. It's all a plan A. And we call it the gospel. And this is the wonderful news of how God can restore people unto himself. And we learned about uh, it's the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Who remembers the four words uh, that, that help us explain the gospel. We'll just say them one at a time. So it's God, man, Christ, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. And then tonight, we're going to look at verse number 23. Uh, let's look at verse number 23. It says, And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time you've given us to come together into your house, to uh, this, this, this place that we've designated uh, to come together in, Lord, and I pray that you would bless this time. Lord, speak to us through your word. Be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, tonight we're going to be talking about the cost of something, and I thought it'd be interesting to do a little bit of a little um, exercise here at the beginning, kind of get you guys involved. I want you guys to guess the cost of items, uh, what they were a hundred years ago. The hot cost of items, I'm sure, have changed over a long period of time. So raise your hand if you want to guess how much a half a gallon of milk cost a hundred years ago. All right? All right. Yes, you, sir. Yes. Ten cents. What about you behind him in the gray? Two cents. Right? One more, one more uh, uh, guess. Twenty-five cents. You're the closest. Twenty-eight cents. Right? Twenty-eight cents is what a gallon. What does it cost now? For a half a gallon of milk, what, three bucks at least, four. All right, ten pounds of potatoes. How many? How much do you think that cost a hundred years ago? Fifteen. Take another one. 
50. Yes, ma'am. 20 cents, I'm assuming, is what they're saying. One more? 10 cents. It's 36. I think you were the closest, right? 36. Now, frosted flakes, how much did they cost 100 years ago? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, no frosted flakes. All right, what about a dozen eggs? Yeah. 11 cents? 10 cents? 25? Oh, sorry, you? 13? The correct answer is 25 cents, according to this website that I found. Uh, who knows if they're right? I, I wasn't there to check. Have to, have to ask. Uh, I, I shouldn't do that. <coughs> I was going to be mean, but I won't do that. All right, let, let's see. Five pounds of sugar. How much do you think that cost 100 years ago? Someone that hasn't guessed yet. All right. Yes, ma'am. Twelve dollars. Wow. hundred years ago. Yes. Eighty-five cents. Okay. Sixty-five. Last, last one. Fifty. Thirty-five. I think you're the closest. All right. Last one. Five pounds of flour. How much do you think that cost? All right. So, yes. Sixty. Wait, you've already done it. Yes, ma'am. Fifty. One, one more person that hasn't guessed yet. Yes. 30, you're 31 cents, almost right on, right on the money, all right? So cost, the cost of things change all the time, don't they? In fact, I remember, I think it was uh, my, my dad, my grandmother would tell me she would buy gas for five cents a gallon. Can you imagine that? Five cents a gallon. Things change over time. Things change. Cost changes over time. You know, there's a cost for everything, is there not? There's no free lunch. You know, I've, I've, I've heard people say that the only thing free is your salvation. But really, that's not even true because it did cost someone something. It actually cost someone everything, if you think about it. Remember, we just had Christmas here recently. You parents, you, you, don't, you realize that those, those presents didn't just show up under the tree. It cost someone something. Now, your kids got them for free, but it did cost someone something to put those presents under the tree. You and I know that if we're going to take a trip we need to count the cost. Uh, trips can get very expensive. If you want to go to college, you got to count the cost, right? Universities can be very expensive. Uh, another thing, if you want to go out to eat, it's getting expensive. You need to count the cost. There's a lot of things that we need to do whenever we do it. We need to count the cost. In our text today, we see the true cost of discipleship, what it costs to be a disciple of Christ. So uh, uh, kids, if you're answering the title, the title is, What is the Cost of Discipleship? What is the Cost of Discipleship? So in verse number three, Jesus says to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, I'm going to make a, a statement that in some churches may be, may be a scandalous statement to make, but I've already cleared it with a pastor, and he says that it's not heresy. Uh, and, and you guys won't flog me for saying anything like this. So I'll, I'll, I'll continue on with it. But uh, unfortunately, we're in a state where in a lot of independent Baptist churches, if you preach like this, you, you may get ostracized for it. So uh, the statement is this. All true born-again believers are Christ followers or disciples of Christ. All true born-again believers are disciples of Christ. That statement goes in the face of the common belief that, that, is, that is in a lot of churches today that there are like two types of Christians. There's, there's just the normal Christians who've just believed, 
And then there are the super Christians. There's the super dedicated Christians, and we call them more like the disciples, right? So there's, there's just the, the mass of Christians, right, that, that aren't super dedicated. You know, they come to church. They're not really sold out for the Lord. And then there's the ones that are really sold out for the Lord, that are really doing things for God, and we call them the, the, the disciples. The first group are just saved people. The second group are people who are, are an elite group of those who are really on fire for the Lord, faithfully serving him so so in in the eyes of modern christianity today you can be a christian and not a disciple but we should encourage christians to become disciples so that they can bring more honor and glory to the lord and have a more blessed and abundant life but the problem is is that's not what the bible teaches Uh, the bible teaches that those that call themselves christians who are just dipping their toe in Christianity, not really willing to jump in, are not Christians at all. I don't believe that there's a group of weak, helpless Christians that cannot defeat the devil and they can't live for the Lord, but they just need to make another commitment to the Lord and get really sold out uh, to be one of His disciples. I believe the Bible teaches that, that those people are, and this is, a, this is a term I've coined if you want to use it, you've got to trademark it, Chinos. All right, there's, you've heard of rhinos, right? Republicans in name only? These people are Chinos, Christians in name only, right? They're professing Christians, but they're not possessing Christians. So all true born-again believers are disciples of Christ. Now, before we go any further, I want to prove uh, the statement that I just made. Uh, The Greek word that's translated disciple is found 269 different times in the Bible. So hold your horses. I'm just kidding. We're not going to look at every single one of those, right? Uh, But but I actually stole this next quote from a guy named uh, Thomas Ross, who is a lot smarter than I. And he said this, generally a disciple is a learner or a follower. And a disciple of Christ is one who follows the Lord Jesus and follows or keeps his commandments. Scripture repeatedly records that Christ's disciples follow him. While as it is expected, not all of the 269 references refer specific, like specifically define the word, but very strong exegetical evidence from many passages establish that one becomes a disciple of Christ uh, at the same moment when some be- someone becomes a believer. So that discipleship begins at regeneration and all the people of God, not some elite minority, are identified as disciples in Scripture. No verse in Scripture teaches that believers become disciples at some post-conversion crisis or only, uh, or only some of the regenerate are disciples. So let me explain to you what he says in layman's terms. Um, Basically, he says that all Christians are disciples. There's no separate classes of Christians. And Christians become disciples at the very moment that they're saved, not at some later point of dedication in their life. Now, let's look at this uh, and let's prove this from the Bible. Look at Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Acts 11 verses 25 and 26. Acts 11 25 and 26. It says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he besought him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church. What is a church comprised of? Baptized believers, right? Right, that are assembled. All right, with the church and taught much people. And the, what's the next word? Disciples were called what? 
Christians first in Antioch. And it's interesting, in modern day Christianity, they teach that you're a Christian first and then you become a disciple. But what's interesting is these people were disciples before they became Christians, before they became known as Christians. The first people who were known as Christians were these this church, the church of Antioch, these are little Christ. They, they were so uh, similar to Christ in the way that they acted that people said, you guys are just like Christ. Wouldn't it, wouldn't to God that the same thing would be said about us, right? But what's interesting is these people were called disciples before other people called them Christian. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. This verse is talking about the believers in this church, and it's interesting to note they're called disciples before they're called Christians. Most people have it the other way around. Now look at Acts 1.15. Acts 1.15. As I like to say, 2 Luke, right? 2 Luke 1.15, right? It's the second book of Luke is the Acts of the Apostles. Acts 1.15. It says, And in those days Peter stood in the midst of the, what's the word? disciples and said the number of the names together were about 120 it's not 12 it's 120 all of the church of jerusalem as they were assembled they were all known as what as disciples of christ this is the day of pentecost those christ followers they were all gathered together in one room this is the church of jerusalem and every single person in that room is called a disciple of christ if you were to look at Acts chapter 6, you could look at 1 through 7. We'll do it at a different time. But it talks about the disciples were multiplied. And, and the whole church in Jerusalem several times in that passage is called disciples, right? The disciples were not the Navy SEALs of the church. They were not the special elite super Christians. All Christians were considered disciples. Let's look at one more. Acts chapter 20 verse 7. It says... Acts 20, verse 7. This is the story when Eutychus fell asleep during Paul's preaching and fell out the window, right? This is what, what happens right before that. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, And upon the first day of the week, the who? The disciples came together to break bread. Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Now, we won't get there tonight. I'm just kidding. But, uh, no, we're not going to be preaching till midnight tonight. But if we were, I'm sure there would be some Eutychuses here. Uh, but, unfortunately, we don't have any Pauls here to revive you if you were to fall out a window and die. But uh, here we see the disciples were come together. The whole church, the church in Troas, they were all known as disciples. Now, we could spend a few more hours looking at the other 250-plus examples examples but we're not going to i think you get the point a christian is a disciple and a disciple is a christian a christian doesn't need a second spiritual experience to become a disciple all true born again believers are christ followers or disciples of christ so if a christian is a disciple and if a disciple is a christian then if you're a disciple of christ actively seeking to follow the lord and to do what he wants you to do then if you, are, sorry, if you are a disciple of Christ, actively seeking to follow the Lord, do what He wants you to do, then you're a Christian. But if you're not, if you're not a disciple, if you're not seeking to serve the Lord, then we can say, conversely, you're not a Christian, right? Let me define the word disciple now. Uh, what's interesting is I took the, the, the definition right out of a dictionary, the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. It says, a disciple is a follower an adherent to the doctrines of another. Hence, the constant attendance of Christ were called his disciples. And hence, all Christians are called his disciples as they profess to learn 
and receive his doctrines and precepts. Even Noah Webster uh, realized that all Christians were known as disciples. We are those that follow after our Lord and follow after his teachings. Is that not what the disciples did, the 12 apostles did? Didn't they follow him wherever he went? Didn't they listen to his teachings? And uh, uh, we see that all Christians are followers of Christ. We see here that since all Christians are disciples, then what we will be talking about for the remainder of the sermon should be true for all of us who claim Christ, all of us who claim to be believers. In fact, if, we are going to, uh, if what we are going to mention is not true of you, then maybe you're not a Christian in the first place. So that was our introduction. It's a long introduction. Let's jump right into the message. Verse 23, And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now remember from our, our first two messages, Jesus is talking to his disciples, but he says, if any man, so he's not just talking to his disciples, he's talking to anyone, if any man uh, will come after me. So these are, are what we must do. We see three requirements uh, if we want to be a disciple of Christ. These words, they were spoken first 2,000 years ago, but they echo. They've echoed all throughout history, all throughout the history of the churches, all, th- uh, all the way to us today, right? If you want to be a disciple of Christ, uh, nothing's changed, right? The, the, the cost of sugar and the cost of, of butter and all these things, they've changed over time. But the cost of following Christ, the cost of being a disciple of Christ has not changed for 2,000 years. And if you want to be a disciple of Christ, there are three requirements, right? There are three requirements. Uh, it says, if, you, if any man will come after me. So if any man, in our modern English, we would say, wants to come after me. If any man wants to be a follower of me, if any man wants to be a disciple of me, first of all, let him deny himself. So number one, you must deny yourself. Now here's a question. Why must I deny myself well because the bible teaches that before your conversion you were an idolater you were a self-worshipper you were the boss you did what you wanted to do you always sought autonomy you being in charge you being in in control of everything you don't like being under authority you want to be an island to yourself here's a profound thought if you're following you can't be leading that's a really, that's, uh, from, uh, from us, for us in Oklahoma, that's a big thought, right? If you're following, you can't be leading. You don't come, become a follower by leading, but by following. Have you ever played the game Follow the Leader? Right? Uh, how many leaders are there in that game? One. If there's two leaders, then, then it's chaos, right? There's one leader, right? And everyone seeks to do what the follower does, or Simon says, or whatever it is. Uh, there's, a, there's a leader, and there's followers. They don't work if there's multiple leaders. There can only be one leader. You must submit yourself to the will of another, to the will of the Lord. You are not doing your own thing anymore. You are a follower. You are a disciple. You are subservient to the dictates of your leader. You are, you are no longer the center of your universe. You are no longer the boss You no longer seek independence. You are subjected to the authority of another. Is not the message of Christ, deny yourself, the opposite of the message of the world? 
What does the world say, right? Be you, celebrate you, do what makes you happy. You are destined for greatness. Make your own path. Do what you want. But Jesus says, if you want to be a disciple, you must first deny yourself. Christ's call to all who would be his disciples is for them to deny themselves. They must submit to him. They must give him control of their lives. They must surrender to his will. The call of Christ here in our text is disgusting. It's repulsive for people who are not saved. They they hate this kind of thought. They despise God and his mandates. But God calls all who would be saved, all who would follow him, to deny themselves. Self-denial was a very common thread in Christ's teachings. He said it many, many different times, many different ways. One of them was Luke 11, verses 25 through 47. It says, And there went great multitudes with them, and he turned and said unto him, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brother, brethren and sisters, yea, he, and his own life also he cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says you must hate your family and even your own life in order to be a disciple of Christ. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says hate your family, hate your father, your mother, your brothers? Is he talking about actual disdain, actual hatred as, as we would imagine? Right? Is, am I telling you right now to hate those people that gave, you, gave birth to you, that love you and, and seek your good and all this stuff? No, that's not what Jesus was teaching, right? Uh, we must understand that the word hate in this verse means something different than disdain because Jesus is always the epitome of everything that he has called us to do. So here's a question. Did Jesus hate disdain, despise his own family? No, he didn't, right? Think about this. Um, Jesus loved his brothers so much that after he ascended to heaven, he appeared unto his brethren so his brethren would believe in him. While Jesus was ministering, his brothers didn't believe in him. But afterwards, he appeared unto them. And we know that James believed and Judas believed. uh, 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 And Jude believed. It's Judas in Russian, so a bad translation. right? So James and Jude both believed. And they uh, ended up writing books in the New Testament. James became one of the pastors of the Jerusalem church. And, and we know that Jesus, when he was hanging on the cross, he cared so much about his mother that he called out to John and asked John to take care of his mother while he was gone. So Jesus loved his mother. Jesus loved his brother. And Jesus loved his family. You must understand that Jesus would never call you to do something that he himself was not willing to do. Jesus did not despise his family. He loved them. He looked after them. So what does Jesus mean when he calls us to hate our family and even our own lives for Christ's sake? If you remember, there was an instance whenever Jesus was in a house and he was teaching and he was thronged. There were people all around him as he was teaching. And then his mother and his brethren, they come up to Jesus and they require that Jesus stop in the middle of all of his teaching, in the middle of all of his ministry, and go and talk to them. And do you remember how Jesus acted in that, in that time? Right? Jesus, Jesus made them wait. Jesus made them wait until he was done. And he said, my mothers and my, brother, uh, my brothers and my sisters, they are those that do the will of God. So hatred in this passage is not contempt or loathing it means lesser love lesser love in these verses jesus was calling his disciples to cultivate such a devotion and such a love to him 
that their attachment to everything else would seem like hatred in comparison, right? We love Christ more than our own lives. We love Christ more than our own families. That's what Jesus is calling us to do in this in this uh, uh passage of scripture someone who hates their own life for the cause of christ uh for the for the cause of being a disciple of christ says god you're the boss and i'm willing to to put your will for my life above my own will i'm willing to do whatever you would have me to do i'm willing to go wherever you would have me to go i'm willing to do anything you'd have me to do serve in whatever capacity that you want me to serve in i am yours this is self-denial this is what a disciple of christ looks like john chapter 12 verse 24 through 26 jesus says verily verily i say unto you except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die it abideth alone but if it die it bringeth forth much fruit he that loveth his life shall lose it and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal we also see self-denial in this passage as well if you love your life you are going to lose it. But if you hate your life in comparison, right? So more than loving your own life, you love the Lord and what God wants you to do. You'll keep it unto life eternal. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is that if you live your life for yourself, and if you never deny yourself, if you seek after your own will, your own desires for your own life, you are going to lose your life and you will end up in hell why because that's what unsaved people do unsaved people don't deny themselves unsaved people live for themselves they live for their own pleasure they don't deny themselves but jesus says if you hate your life this means if you deny yourself and if you follow after christ if you strive to please god with your life and not yourself then what you are going to find life and not just a fulfilled joyful happy life here on this earth eternal life with Christ in heaven. So Jesus says the first thing you must do in order to be a disciple is to deny yourself. The second thing is to take up your cross daily. You must take up your cross daily. Now in our hindsight, after 2,000 years after the death of Christ, we think of the cross as something that is wonderful, as something that is miraculous, something that is awe-inspiring. In fact, the cross has become a, a Christian symbol all around the world and, and probably the most popular of all Christian symbols. Everywhere you look in a Christian house, usually you see a cross. A lot of people wear crosses on their shirts, crosses in, in a necklace and, and things like that. We think of crosses as something glorious, something wonderful, because when we look at the cross, we think about Jesus and what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. But think about this. Back then, the cross meant something totally different. The cross was not a glorious thing, but a shameful thing. Those who were to die death on a cross were stripped naked. They were nailed to a cross, hoisted high in the air for all passerbys to see. Their conviction was displayed above their heads. If they were a murderer, then they'd put over their heads, murderer. If they were a thief, then they'd put over their heads, thief. If they were insurrectionists, if they were a rebel, then they would put rebel over the top of their head, right? Do you remember what was over the top of Jesus' head? 
king of the Jews, right? And then the Pharisee said, no, right, that he said he was the king of the Jews. He said, what I wrote, I wrote, right? So praise the Lord. God's conviction was he was the king of the Jews. That's why they killed him. But, but anyways, they, they would have this billboard. They would be a billboard of if, you, if you're a thief, that's what happens to thieves. If you're a murderer, that's what happens to murderers. If you seek to go against the Roman authorities here, this is what is going to happen to you. You are going to meet a sorry pitiful end. They became a billboard of shame and reproach for all of those in the city dying a very slow and miserable death. What is interesting to note is that Jesus had not told his disciples yet that he was going to die the death on a cross. In fact, the first time in, in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus mentions to his disciples that he's going to die is in verse 22, the, the verse before, where he says, he must be slain and raised the third day. So they didn't understand that Jesus was going to die on the cross. So when Jesus tells them to take up their cross, they had no idea that Jesus would have died on a cross. So what did, they, what did, what did Jesus meant when, they said, when he told them, take up your cross? It's obviously a figure of speech. And the way we know that is right after that, the disciples didn't go and literally take crosses and lug crosses around as they were following after Jesus. So if, if it's a figure of speech, what does that mean? What was Jesus getting at when he said, to be my disciple, you must take up your cross? I believe it means four things. Cross means opposition, number one. If you are really going to follow after Christ, you will encounter opposition. That's why if you love your family more than you love Christ, you're not worthy to be his disciple. That's what Jesus says. Because a lot of times your family is going to seek, especially if they're not Christians, right? Uh, your family is going to seek to hinder you in that. Oh, you don't need to do that. You don't need to waste your life preaching the gospel. You don't need to go to that foreign country. You shouldn't work on becoming a preacher. You shouldn't do all this stuff in church. You need to, you know, they're going to they're gonna seek to, to mess you up. They're going to seek to get you off course, right? So we must take our cross, and that means opposition, your family may oppose you. Unsafe friends will seek to drag you down. Your coworkers will mock you and you will be oppressed. Jesus himself talked about bringing a sword and dividing families from one another. Uh, Matthew 10, 34 through 37 says, He came to bring a sword to divide a uh, 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 daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. And anyone that loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's what Jesus says. So if you're going to take up your cross, a lot of times it means opposition. You're going against the grain. You're swimming upstream. Why? Because we live in a dark evil world what's the hymn i am resolved say i am resolved to enter the kingdom leaving the paths of sin and it says friends may oppose me foes may beset me still i will enter in so we must we will face opposition if we take up our cross secondly shame if you're really going to follow after christ you are going to be shamed there's no glory in bearing a cross. There's shame and humiliation attached to it. Those who were crucified already said they were stripped naked. They were nailed to a cross for everyone to scorn. What's interesting is Hebrews 12, 2. In that verse, it says that Jesus, when he endured the cross, he despised the shame. He despised the shame 
of the cross because to Jesus, he knew why he was doing it. He was doing it for you and he was doing it for me. He despised the shame. The Bible says it was the joy that was set before him. Uh, we know that, that, that uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was really struggling. He wasn't struggling because he knew that it was going to be painful to die. There are so many Christians that have faithfully endured uh, you know, being burned to death, being torn apart, all these horrible, horrible deaths. And they, they went there with confidence, with full assurance, not thinking uh, anything else, just, just going forward and, and dying the death for Christ. But Jesus wasn't worried and wasn't stressed out about all that stuff. He wasn't hurting because that, he was hurting because he was to take on the very thing that he hated, sin that he so hated, right? Uh, the Bible says he himself became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But Jesus, it was the joy that was in front of him. He despised the shame for you and me. Acts chapter 5, at the end of that, that chapter in verses 40 and 41, there's a really interesting uh, uh, time where all of the apostles are rounded up they're brought before the Sanhedrin, which are the, the, the judges of Israel at that time. And they're told not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They flogged them and then they set them, uh, they set them uh, out. And they said, if you're going to preach anymore, we're going to kill you. And what's interesting is the last words uh, of, of chapter 5, it says, And they departed from the presence of the council, these are the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. Now, I think a lot of us, if we were called to suffer for Christ, we would, we would leave depressed or dejected. But these people were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. If you take up your cross, it may mean opposition. It may mean shame. And it may also mean suffering. If you're really going to follow after Christ, you're going to suffer. The cross is not a cross of pleasure. It's a cross of suffering. All true Christians will suffer in some way for Christ. That's what Romans 8 says. Look with me, please, at Romans 8, verses 16 through 18. All true Christians will in some way suffer for the cause of Christ. Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Look, notice the next phrase. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. If you suffer with Christ here on this earth, taking up your cross and following after him, you're going to be glorified with Christ. So if we suffer, we're going to be glorified. If we don't suffer... If we deny Christ in front of people so that we can fit into the crowd, what's going to happen? We're not going to be glorified with Christ. It says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Yes, there may be some sufferings that we have to endure for Christ, but the Bible says that they're a short term and they have nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits us in heaven. And the last thing that taking up a cross means is it could mean even death. If you're really going to follow after Christ, it may mean death. For many millions of Christians throughout the centuries, this meant actual physical torture and death. 
If your life is so precious to you that you are not willing to give it up for the sake of Christ, are you a follower? Are you a disciple of Christ? The one that went to the cross for you, are you really a follower of him? 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12 says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus may be made manifested in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. When, when uh, Paul wrote these words, there were people that were dying for the sake of Christ. And he says it's happening all the time. And this is something that we, we live in a, a really cushy environment for Christians right now. Things are changing. Things may get worse. What is more important to you? Is it more important you to live a cushy, plush life or to sacrifice it all for the sake of Christ? So if you want to be a disciple of Christ, you must deny yourself. Put yourself in the back seat, giving up to God total control of your life. And you must take up your cross, which means uh, being cognizant that living a life uh, that is pleasing to God may mean opposition by the world. It may mean shame and suffering, and it may even mean death. If you want to look at verse number 23 with me again, I want to sh- notice one word with you. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. What's the next word? Daily. This is not a one and done thing, right? This is a daily exercise. It's not a Sunday only thing. It's not a whenever I feel like it thing. It means to take up your cross daily. It's a habit. It's a state of mind, right? Uh, The third thing that we must do if we want to be a follower of Christ is we must follow Christ. We must deny ourselves, we must take up our cross daily, and we must follow Him. If you want to be a follower of Christ, you must follow Christ. It's pretty logical, isn't isn't it? You want to be a follower? you got to follow. Christ is the leader. He's the one we go after. We are going His way. We're following after Him. We are seeking to live as Christ lived. We are seeking to serve as Christ served. We are seeking to preach as Christ preached. We are seeking to have compassion on others as Christ had compassion on others. We are seeking to combat error as Christ fought against error. We are seeking to love the Father as Christ loved the Father. We are seeking to submit ourselves to the Father's will as Christ submitted to the Father's will. We are seeking to follow in Christ's footsteps. This is what it means to follow Christ. To follow Christ also means to live according to His Word. Live according to the Bible. Following Christ is the natural result of denying yourself, right? If we're following Him, we're His sheep, and He's our shepherd, right? Uh, 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 He takes good care of us. He leads us beside the still waters. He restores our soul. He takes good care of us. So in conclusion, if you want to be a disciple of Christ, you must, number one, deny yourself. Number two, take up your cross daily. And number three, follow after Christ. Christ. Remember what we talked about at the beginning of the sermon? A true Christian is a disciple of Christ. Now, please understand, we are not teaching works salvation here, okay? This passage is is not teaching us what we must do in order to become a Christian, in order to become a disciple of Christ. We are not teaching that we must put forth efforts in order to be saved, but rather 
this passage is showing us what true Christianity looks like, right? What true Christianity feels like, right? We know what a true Christian looks like. It's someone that denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows him. I don't do that to become a Christian. I do that because God has saved me. These are the fruits of a new life. These are the fruits of a new creation. And the reason why we have this is so that we can understand who is a Christian and who is not. Who has the saying faith and who has the saving faith. We can examine ourselves and get full assurance knowing that we are Christians uh, as, as we see that we are following after Christ. The cost of discipleship is high. It is so high that an unbeliever is not willing to pay it. It is so high that many nominal Christians who are not Christians at all are not willing to pay it. So here's a question. What about you? Are you willing to do what it takes to become a disciple of Christ? Are you a Christian? A disciple has denied himself and he takes up his cross daily and he follows after Christ. We can check ourselves. We can examine our lives to see if we're really disciples of Christ. The life lived is proof of the faith held. The proof that you have believed in Christ for salvation is that you're continuing to believe in Him for salvation. The the proof that you've repented unto life is that you continue to live a life of repentance. Not that I repented one time and now I don't repent anymore. I do what I want to do, right? The proof that I've repented unto life and that I've believed into Christ for salvation is that I continue that new life that God has given me in Christ. The cost is high, but let me tell you this. The reward is much greater. The cost is high, but the reward is much greater. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me, upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, there is a cost of discipleship. Yes, it's high. Yes, it hasn't changed. Jesus has not lowered the, the bar for disciples today. But let me tell you this. The cost of sin is much higher. The cost of discipleship is high. But the cost of losing your soul, the cost of spending eternity separated from God in a horrible place called hell is much higher than that. Mark 10, 29 and 30, Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that has left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels, but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. What Jesus is saying here is that anything you do as you sacrifice your life for me, anything that you do as you pay that cost of discipleship, God will bless you. God will reward you. You've, you've, you've seemingly 
lost your life, and we're going to be talking about that tomorrow morning, right? You seemingly lost your life. You've, you've given up your own desires for your life, and now you submit to God's will for your life. And as you do it, you are going to be happy. You are going to be joyful. You are going to be fulfilled. Not, not, this, not this temporary happiness that comes and goes in the world. You are going to have God's rich blessings on your life. You know, I, I'm not perfect and, 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 and I, don't, I, don't, I don't claim to be, I don't even play one on TV. I, I, but we, one of the things that we have sought to do is to follow hard after the Lord, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily, and to follow after Christ. And yes, there's been struggles, and yes, the cost has been high, but the payoff has been so much better. God has blessed us in, in, such a great bless, in such a great way that if I had another life to go back and redo everything, I'd have only followed hard after Christ before I, I started doing it. I, I just wish, like Nathan Hell, I was reading him earlier today. Uh, he was a, an American spy during the, uh, uh, the uh, revolution uh, here uh, 300 some years ago. And uh, he was caught and he was uh, led uh, to execution for the sake of his country. And he said, I regret that I only have one life to give for my country. And I, I feel the same way. Living for God is so worth it. It's so worth it. It's so much better than living in the world. I've tried to do both, right? And living for God is so much better, so much more enjoyable that I wish, I wish I had more lives to give for the cost of Christ, for the cause of Christ. So here's the cost of discipleship. Are you willing to pay that cost? Let's pray.